0: Revelation chapter 20. Today we're going to talk about something called the millennial kingdom. And in Revelation, so far, during this tribulation period that just last week finally it's over with, God's been doing several things. And he's going to do in the future several things to prepare the way for heaven to come down to earth. So he's going to do that. As we've already read, Revelation chapter 17, he's going to do that. Hey, my clicker's not doing its deal. can't believe that. I paid $9 for this thing. What the world. Well, Jesse will hit the down button. That'll help. So basically, um, nope, not that down button. There's, There's other stuff. Here we go. Hey, look at that. I tried to get high tech with my slide. That was my first mistake. High-tech redneck. Chapter 17 uh, shows us that before the millennial kingdom can come, you know, remember what we pray pray in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, just as it is being done in heaven. And so in chapter 17, God has, through a series of uh, circumstances, and by His sovereign grace, He's going to remove the corrupt and false worship system from the world. In chapter 17, we saw Mystery Babylon, this great harlot who was sitting on top of the red dragon, who thought she was in control. The church, Mystery Babylon, this uh, harlot of a church, this mixed marriage between government and religiosity, and and really no Jesus uh, when you really get down to the root of the thing. It's going to be destroyed and removed Uh, In chapter 17 of Revelation, and then that will make way for the corrupt uh, government and economic system of mystery, not no longer mystery Babylon, but the great city Babylon, which is the world government system that is corrupt from the top down and from the bottom up. It's all built on corruption, and so that will be removed in order to prepare for what God's going to do next. But what that's going to do, according to Revelation chapter 19 that we studied last week, is it will usher in the righteous ruler, and he will make his enemies his footstool. If you remember with me, last week we looked at two feasts. And these aren't the Leviticus chapter 23 uh, Israelite feasts. These are the feasts of the Lamb, where all believers will come down from heaven with Jesus, and they will celebrate the feast of the Lamb. But at the same time, there will be a battle going on, the Battle of Armageddon, where all of God's enemies, in just two verses that we read last week, all of God's enemies, all those who rebelled against God, will be destroyed by the Lamb. And then God calls for a second feast. He calls by an angel, he, a messenger from God from heaven, says, all you birds of the air, go and feast On my enemies that I've destroyed. And so the birds of the air will partake in a feast of all flesh that has been struck down by Jesus in chapter 19. And then the next chapter where we're in today is God will restrain the previous evil king. Remember God's kingdom, God's earth, his creation. The title deed of the earth was given away when Adam said, I'm going to do my will. I'm going to do Satan's will instead of God's will, and so from that point on, they were kicked out of the garden. God was no longer in control, but instead they gave control over to Satan, the very real enemy, and when they did that, they set up an earthly kingdom that was built on man and demonic power. And we are under the influence of that kingdom even today, unless you're under the shed of blood of Jesus and you've been given new life. And so he's going to restrain that king, Satan, and he's going to set up a righteous government and order in chapter 20. So that's what we're going to read about today. And that will ultimately lead to the millennial kingdom being complete, heaven on earth, or will it be? And so it will be, let's read Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. After this battle in Armageddon, and the birds feasting on flesh. Chapter 20, verse 1 says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years, and he cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set up a excuse me, set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Sorry about my candy. My throat's a little sore this morning. So in verse 1 through 3, God will, by the hand of a nameless angel, he will apprehend and incarcerate one Satan. That serpent of old. Now, you'll notice that the angel comes from heaven. He has a key. A key is a symbol of authority. Somebody gives you a key to their place, they're giving you access and authority to a place that no one else has access to unless they also possess that key. That key is a symbol of authority, and this angel is given this key. And the key is to what? The bottomless pit the abyss. Now, in the Greek, the word is abuso, and if you remember from chapter 9 of Revelation that Satan opened this abuso. He also has access, lucky him. He has access to open up this kennel, if you will, to let out all of his dogs. He's going to let out all the demons in chapter 9, and they did what? They wreaked havoc and chaos during the tribulation period. But This angel has the key. He opens it in a chain. I don't know about you, but I envision, maybe I'm wrong. I envision this angel having two hands. In one hand, he has a key and a chain, and with one other hand, he chokeslams Satan and puts him in hell. Now, how many of you have seen the meme on the internet, the visual thing where like God and Satan are arm wrestling and it's like and you don't know who's gonna get it, right? That's not how it goes. Jesus doesn't even get involved. He's like, hey, uh Minion, go take care of my light work. So he sends this angel, a created being, to deal with Satan, who has already been destroyed, by the way. He's just kind of wreaking havoc because he knows his time is short. He slams him, or at least he grabs a hold of him. He throws him into the abyss, and he locks the thing. And that's pretty much it. That, that's the whole battle. It's not even really a contest. And so what's happening is he takes this serpent of old who has deceived Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 3, verse 4, and I want to give you some of his aliases. You know, if you're going to have a rundown or a bulletin, An APB, stuck on the bulletin board like Barney Fife would, he would have all of his aliases, right? So let's list them. Abaddon, accuser, the accuser of the brethren. The adversary, the angel of the abyss. Hey, great for you. Your your domain is the abyss. You get the bottomless pit, which, by the way, is different than the lake of fire. Apollyon, Belial, beelzebub devil the evil one god of this world murderer the prince of the power of the air that's what ephesians calls him the ruler of darkness now if you're the prince of darkness maybe you're ozzy osborne maybe that's your jam but he's called the ruler of darkness the ruler of the demons uh, the ruler of the world serpent tempter, unclean spirit. So I don't know about you, but none of these names are ones I'm going to have tattooed on myself anytime soon. But the idea is like he's got all these names in scripture and none of them seem to be anything uplifting or positive. Now, we also know that he comes to us, not called the angel of darkness or the prince of darkness or the ruler. of the- He comes to us as an angel of life, an angel of light because he's a deceiver. He's actually the father of lies, is what Jesus calls him. And so all of that said, those are his aliases, here's his sentence. 1,000 years in the bottomless pit. Solitary confinement. He's put in there for 1,000 years. Now, 1,000 years is a long time. Don't get me wrong. But why? It's not eternity, is it? Why is he locking him away for a period of time? Shouldn't it be eternity? we're going to look at that. But notice what is done to Satan. He is captured. He's apprehended. He's bound. He's got the cuffs on. He's contained. And then he is sealed. It says he puts a seal on him. Who else did that kind of thing happen to? Didn't Satan try to do that to his adversary? Jesus was captured. He was bound. He was contained. He got a trial, but it was kind of a mock trial, and then he was sealed. They put a seal on the cave that they put him in after he was killed, right? But he did not remain in there. It was for three days, not a 1,000 years. So what Satan tried to do to Jesus, Jesus has had done to Satan, and he can do it for as long or as short as he wants, but he chooses to put him in there for a 1,000 years. But again, the person that puts it, who, who brings him in, he's not Michael, doesn't say his name's Michael, doesn't say his name's Gabriel. He's a no-name guy. He's like a beat cop. He's out walking the beat. Nobody knows. He's not a sergeant. He's not the sheriff. He, he's, it doesn't even mention that he's a specific order of angels, just an unnamed guy. I love this because God uses the no-name to do things that only in our world the people with a name can do. But he is given authority from heaven to bind Satan and to throw him away and lock the door. So he's no longer allowed to do the thing he's been doing since the beginning. He's no longer allowed to deceive the nations for a thousand years. So the question that I come away with this passage is, why would he be released? Well, I'm not going to tell you yet. The Bible will tell us. Verse 4, And then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them, not on them, but to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image. And had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for, there it is again, a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall reign Excuse me. They shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with Him. There it is again. A thousand years. So He will incarcerate Satan. Now He will exalt the saints. Satan and the saints cannot be anywhere close to the same team. Satan is bound. The people who serve Him, they're going to have problems. But those who have refused to worship Satan will be exalted. And in due time, those who will humble themselves will be exalted. Those who exalt themselves will be brought low. They will be humbled. And so the millennial government is being set up. And think about this. Don't think about this in the context of the future. Let's go back to 90 AD when this is written. The vision, this prophecy is being given to the first century church john is on the island of patmos for being imprisoned for his faith not for breaking the law not for rebelling against rome he's in trouble he's in prison he's incarcerated for the testimony and the witness of jesus he's making disciples and that's why he was thrown in jail not because he refused to wear a mask not because he broke rules that that he didn't like. He's incarcerated for the testimony of Jesus Christ. They were told you must worship Caesar. As a Christian, you couldn't worship Caesar because you're making a God of something other than the creator. And so to those who have not bowed the knee to Caesar, to those who have not given up the testimony of Jesus, guess what? They're having their heads lobbed off they're being put on stakes. And I didn't get into the details, but they're being stuck onto a pole. And what that means is that the pole was a sharpened stick. Nero would take Christians and impale them. He would take the, his soldiers would do it. They would put the the Christians. These aren't ungodly people. Christians would be imprisoned and they would have a pole jammed from their anus up through their neck. They would be have tar dipped on them and lit on fire. People, we're not persecuted. (laughs) Not really. We're in America and we have so many rights still as believers. Stop stinking complaining and start sharing the gospel. But that being said, he's writing to that group. And he's saying, guess what? God's going to take vengeance on his enemies that are your enemies you will be killed possibly but guess what they will be judged and so to the believers this is comfort though you may be killed that's not the end you have eternal life and so he says don't be silent but here he is he's setting up the millennial government system and who's in charge who's given authority who's given the right to be a judge, a justice of the peace? Those who had been cut off for righteousness sake. Those who had their heads removed. Those who refused to worship the beast or take his mark. Those who will be a part of the first resurrection. Now, let's not think about the first resurrection happening then. Remember, God's outside of time. The first resurrection began at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 20 says that he is the first fruits of the resurrection. So scripture also teaches that to be absent from the body is to be present where? With the Lord. And so this is the resurrection that's been taking place throughout time that will come to its final after the tribulation where the resurrection of the dead has continued throughout history. And so the second death has no power over this group. And he actually says this in verse 6. He says, Blessed and holy are they who have part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. And this just repeats what has already been said if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. As John starts getting the vision in verse 4, he's already written grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. There's that idea again from 1 Corinthians 15, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us here it is kings and priests to his god and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever amen so he started with that truth and now he's shown us how that truth is going to come to pass god promises things and then he shows us little by little day by day as we take steps of faith and obedience to him He slowly reveals to us how he's going to work out the salvation in our lives, but we don't like to wait, do we? I like to set it and forget it. I like to hit the 30 second button on the microwave and get my meal. But God doesn't microwave us as Christians, He slow cooks us. And when we think about slow cooking meat, it tastes way better when it's cooked slow, right? You microwave a pork butt, it's going to taste horrible. It may not even be cooked but you slow cook one and then you tear it apart and it just falls apart off the bone and you pull a little barbecue or maybe some seasoning, put that on a bun, I, I might be hungry. But, I mean, that's, that's how God's creating in us a savor and a sweetness that, that is an aroma before the Lord. Did you know that the Lord enjoys the smell of barbecue? If he doesn't, why did he have them burn meat on his altar you know, that a, a, an innocent animal would, would need to be sacrificed for, for our salvation, for their daily cleansing. And so the Lord gets the first fruits of that. But all that said, here he is, he's proving and he's working out the salvation in us. And First Peter chapter 2 verse 9 says that we are already what we be, will be in the millennial kingdom. This isn't talking about just the 90 AD people, This isn't just talking about you and I, this is talking about the saints that will believe and will be a part of that kingdom. The entire kingdom of God will come to fruition at this time and we will be given seats of judgment over the people. It will be a real kingdom, but guess what? God's going to take away the tempter, Satan. And when he takes away the tempter, Jesus Christ will literally sit on the ultimate authority seat, he will be the king over this millennial kingdom and we will live and we will breathe and we will move and we will be a part of his authority. But the one thing that I didn't mention in the first um, slide, you know, he's going to take away false worship. He's going to take away the the corrupt governmental systems. He's going to take away uh, the, the tempter, but he hasn't removed the human heart. The human heart is still deceitfully wicked. And so what we find out is that during this time, God's going to be ruling and reigning and there will be a letter of the law and people will submit to the authority of Jesus. But after that, he's going to let Satan loose again. Why? Because he's going to prove that man, apart from being born again, will not see the kingdom of God. Man with, i how many times have you heard someone say, well, if I was Adam and Eve, they'd have told me that I wouldn't have fallen to temptation and then we'd be a whole lot better boat because we wouldn't have fallen and we wouldn't be been kicked out of the garden. Well, first and foremost, Adam and Eve were like the best representative we could have, and they still fell to the temptation. They were deceived. But apart from that, Here's what happens when God sets up a literal kingdom where he can be seen and we can submit to his authority, we will still have a propensity to do what we want to do instead of what he wants to do. And he'll be right there to correct us like we are with little kids. But you can change the outward actions, but you can't govern the human heart. And so um, turn with me to Luke chapter 14. chapter 14 verse 7 says Jesus told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places and he had just told a parable about um anyway verse 8 he says when you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast don't sit down in the best place lest one more honorable than you be invited by him and he who invited you and him come and say to you Give place to this man, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowly place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up to a higher place, and then you will give glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then he also said to him who invited him, when you give a dinner or a supper, Don't ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. And so we will be repaid at the resurrection of the the just. That's what we just read about, this first resurrection And then in Matthew chapter 25, he says, if you've been faithful over a few things, this this idea of the parable of the talents, he said, if you're faithful with a few things, God will make you ruler over many. And we see this. He sets on judgment seats. Those who have been faithful in this life will be judge over many in the next life. And so verse 7, continuing on in Revelation 20, we've seen before The millennial kingdom we've seen the government during the millennial kingdom and now we're going to see what happens after a thousand years is over righteousness has reigned for a thousand years at this point that's the context so we had perfect government perfectly just you know right now people are complaining and rioting because men are unjust judges because officers are sinful people that make mistakes and do sinful things And because of that, it's not trusted, because people murder and hate and strive with one another, because there's roots of bitterness that are allowed to grow up. And then other organizations come in and take advantage of those crevices and cracks in society, and and when they do that, lawlessness takes force, right? But at this point, righteousness will have reigned for 1,000 years several generations, and during that kingdom, there will never have been a mistrial or an unjust punishment, nothing like that, and people will have lived under that authority for generation and generation and generation, and that generation will have been described in Isaiah chapter 2, or I'm going to turn real quick, This, this millennial kingdom is described in Isaiah, if you want to know what it's going to be like, In Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations, look at that, shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, Come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. And during that time they shall beat their swords into plowshares. No more war and their spears will be beat into pruning hooks nation shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore and so during that time there will be this great perfection of government and so um there's other passages that actually read about during that time that a lion will lay next to a lamb and then your children will play with serpents near a, a serpent's den which right now would be like the most ridiculous thing in the world. But at that point, a, a child will play with a snake and they won't have a fear of getting bit. Like this, this will be a time of perfect, perfect unity, uh, even with animals. And so Israel will be, will be the place of power. Citizens of earth will submit to Jesus Christ's leadership. There won't be any war. Animals and humans will no longer fight one another or be scared of one another. Uh, It will be just like going back to the garden, essentially. And then, um, and at that time, here's what's going to happen. It will demonstrate Jesus Christ's victory and his worthiness to reign. People will see how he reigns and they'll see he's the perfect candidate. It will reveal man's rebelliousness and expose that even with perfect circumstances, man will reject righteousness and go for lawlessness still. It will display Satan's eternal depravity because as soon as he's loosed from the abyss, he's going to go right back to what he did. He'll be incarcerated, but he will not be reformed by time out, if that makes sense. And it will also display God's protection over his city and order. And we'll see that here in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7. So now, when the thousand years have expired... His, Satan, his sentence is over. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations once more, which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog, which have already been uh, ex- explained in the book of Revelation. Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is at the sa- as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth, and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So basically this city that we just discussed in Isaiah will be surrounded by the nations of the earth that are going to once again be deceived and try to rail against God's kingdom. Except this time it's going to happen in a much more practical, physical way. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So, so God's going to have his kingdom there in Jerusalem on the highest hill And as he rules and reigns, Satan's released and all the nations of the earth, all these major armies will surround this city to go, nope, not your kingdom come, but my will be done. Our will be done. We want to be in charge. We're not following Jesus. And at that time, when they're besieging the city, when they're surrounding it, it says this is what God's going to do. Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. They will be destroyed. There will not even need to be an army. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them at that point was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are already, And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So he's released from the abuso and he's cast into the lake of fire. So after a thousand years without Satan's influence, mankind is still willing to follow him. After a thousand years of Jesus proving himself by perfect justice and righteousness and leadership, mankind will still desire something else. You ever notice that about your heart even? You can get the new shoes. You can get the the band lifted. We can go out and shop again. You can get the vacation. You can get the car you always wanted. You can get the job you wanted. You can marry the person that you wanted to marry. And your heart can still long for something. Something else. Well, that didn't make me happy. Let me try something else. It's the human condition. It's called sin. We're not content by nature. Outward conformity at this time to Jesus' reign will have been required, and it will have been followed. Inward embrace of his lordship, though, will still be up to an individual's choice. The embracing of making Jesus my personal lord will still be allowed to be an individual's choice. But man or woman, apart from new birth, will always be deceived by Satan and serve his purposes. Now, we like to blame our sinfulness on circumstances, don't we? I can't help it. My parents were always that way. I can't help it. My boss, he just keeps aggravating me, and then I can't help but go off at the mouth and complain and curse. I can't help it because my parents won't let me fill in the blank. I can't help it because so-and-so said this to me, and I'm just Italian. I'm angry. You know, I've said that one, you know. We excuse our behavior based on our environment, and what I'm pointing out through this passage is that our environment only proves our sinfulness even more. You get the perfect conditions, and I'll show you that you'll find that you're still just as sinful, and so with no Satan, no crime, no violence, no evil, no war, without Jesus, my sinful heart that needs to repent is still the problem, nothing else. John the Baptist said to those that would listen, repent, agree with God and turn from your, sinful, your sin. So to non-Christians, you need Jesus before it's too late. John chapter 3, verse 3 says that unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And this is the condemnation, that man prefers darkness to light. He, he rejects Jesus because he likes his sin. But as Christians also, we need to start and think about this as believers. We must stop blaming our environment for our sin and repent. Repentance is a lifestyle. For the kingdom of God is near. And in Romans chapter 13, Paul writes something very close to the same thing. Romans chapter 13, verse 11 through 14, he says, Do this, you don't have to turn there, he says, Do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of our slumber. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand, therefore let us Cast off the works of darkness. This is to believers. Let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as is in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife or in envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Resist. So in verse 11 it says, "Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fleed. And there was no place found for the heavens and the earth to flee from the face of the Lord. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. I'd like for you guys, if, you, if you're the type of person to underline things in your Bible, underline that. The dead were judged according to their labors. By the things which were written in the books, God keeps good records of what we do. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged. Each one, there it is again, According to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Now, for us believers, the second death has no power over us, right? But death and Hades, those who are in those places, Hades is another word of that place, the abyss. Those who have died outside of the Lord are in this holding tank, essentially, not purgatory where you can get prayed into heaven but a holding tank until all those who are judged at this white throne judgment. That will be their court day, but it won't be a hearing. Hearing is where they hear all the information about the evidence that's against us. The hearing is when the books are open, and we go, okay, this is what they did. They said, you know, I'm hoping my good works will outweigh my bad. You ever hear somebody say that? This is the day where you'll find out that they won't any bad works will send you to the fiery place that satan is by the way the lake of fire wasn't made for people it was made for satan and those who serve satan if you serve satan then it's made for you but it was made for satan and his angels that left their heavenly abode and said i'm not going to serve god i'm going to serve myself i'm going to serve satan and so then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so verse 11, the earth and the heavens are tainted by sin and they try to hide from God's sight, but they aren't able. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 13 that says, says that all things are naked and open to God and his sight. He sees purely everything verse 12 through 13 talks about the dead, and they're delivered up from the sea. And from Hades, they were all delivered up for judgment. A lot of people say, well, I I won't experience the resurrection. I don't have to worry about it. And so they have themselves cremated and cast over the sea. Some people do it just because they're trying to save their family money. Don't get me wrong. I think God's bigger than that. I don't think he says you can't cremate. But what I would say is that there are many whether they would say it this way or not, they're trying to escape judgment by being cremated and just spread over the sea or over some place because they believe in reincarnation or whatever it might be. But the idea is is that it doesn't matter how you're scattered. If the earth and the heavens can't escape God's sight, neither can you and I, no matter what state our body is in we will be judged. No one can escape God's judgment. He is perfect in it. So that won't be the day of sentencing. This will be the day where the sentence is pronounced. Not the day of hearing, but the day of sentencing, which is why Paul charged Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 to fulfill his ministry and prepare all men for the coming judgment. We will all be judged. And keep in mind that this judgment is not for believers. So if you're kind of feeling the heat a little bit and you're under the shed blood of Jesus, that this judgment that he's speaking of where it seems like everybody goes straight to the lake of fire, this judgment is not the judgment seat of Christ. This is the judgment, the white throne judgment, whereas believers we won't see. The white throne judgment is for non-believers and it is like okay let's see what your works were you're not in the book of life depart from me i never knew you the judgment seat of christ is like after a cross country country meet okay or any sort of meet where you're competing the olympics and so you you show up you finish your race you're exhausted and you're standing before the person that's the judge and of course, you already know who won and who didn't, but sometimes like high dive and stuff, they do the whole thing where they, they put the numbers up, like 10, or that was the worst jump ever, one, negative five, that would be me. But you appro- you, when you approach the judgment seat in the Olympics, you wait for the judgment to be cast out, and basically what they say is how well you did or didn't do, but you still got to compete, you still finished. And so it's awards. That's the award bench. You know, am I in first place or third place? Doesn't matter. You're placed, you know. And so the idea is that the judgment seat of Christ is how well you did. What you did with what you were given. The white throne judgment is the eternal judgment of saved or not. And if you've been saved, you won't even see this judgment. And so as nonbelievers, works can't save you. They're judged by their works. Uh, We're not judged by our works, but Jesus' work on the cross. So, okay, so if they're judged at the white throne judgment as non-believers, how come we're not judged? Well, because when Jesus took the wrath for our sin on the cross, the the judgment that they'll experience is what Jesus experienced for you and I when he was brutally murdered, when he experienced separation from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we don't have to be. He took the payment. He took the punishment. He took the wrath of God, poured out upon a rebellious heart. Except he took it on himself unrighteously, but he did it to take our place. So that being said, the question is, and I guess the pointing out of this is that This millennial reign will prove the hearts of men. This millennial reign will prove what kingdom you serve. This millennial reign ultimately is another opportunity for mankind mankind to see that his heart is deceitfully wicked above all else. And at the end of this millennial kingdom, which millennial just means a thousand years, what happens is that the real heaven comes to earth chapter 21 and 22, is really the kingdom of God coming. Apart from sin, apart from sorrow, apart from striving, apart from war, all of those who have rejected the king will not get to be a part of that kingdom. No more sorrow, no more hopelessness, no more brokenness, no more CNN or Fox or whatever it is you don't like. No more arguing over this lawlessness and Rebellion in sinful man's heart. And I'm looking forward to that time. I don't know about you guys. So that being said, I think that the the final note we can talk about here is just the fact that we've escaped a great judgment if we've trusted Jesus. And I would encourage anybody here today that that doesn't know whether or not they're actually going to escape this judgment to receive Christ. And I'm going to end with one more passage, Matthew chapter 16. Jesus in verse 21 has just asked Peter, "Who do you say that I am?" In verse 21, of course, after that Peter said, "I, you know, you're the son of God. You have the words of life." Uh, but in verse 21 it says, "From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed." And be raised the third day. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him first deny himself, take up his death instrument, his electric chair, his cross. And follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and exchanges it for his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the son of man, read this, will come in the glory of his father with his angels And then he will reward each according to his works. He warned us. He told us that this judgment is coming. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And they got a foretaste of it, right? They saw his kingdom come. They saw him come in the glory of his Father and the angels on the Mount of Transfiguration. That was just a glimpse into what it would be like. And so my point is, What profit is it if we gain the world? Say tomorrow they open up everything and we get all our rights back that we think that we've lost. What profit does it give us if we lose our soul in the process? It doesn't profit us at all. So is my life as a believer about taking up my rights or is my life as a believer about laying down my rights for the sake of sharing the truth? And so... May we live for the truth. Father, thank you for the way, the truth, and the life that Jesus Christ summed all of those up in the way that he lived and the truth that he told and the life that he lived. Father, help us to repent of anything that causes us to live for this world instead of your kingdom. Help us to die so that we can live truly for the things that matter eternally. Many of us here today have trusted you and so we will never see the, the white throne judgment. We will get to sit on the, the, the seats of judgment. We'll be part of your government during the millennial kingdom. And I don't know how exactly what all that means, but I'm excited about it. That we will be a nation of kings and priests. We'll get to have authority, but we'll also get to represent you to people who don't know you. And we'll also get to represent the people that don't know you and the people that do know you to you. But why does that have to start then? We have that given to us now. We have authority to loosen things in heaven and to bind things in heaven and and to loosen them on earth and to bind things on earth. We get the authority to represent you before a man and then to represent you before God for those man's souls and those women's souls. And so Lord Jesus, I pray that you'd forgive us for not taking that authority and that blessing for granted. Lord, we want to represent you well. Make in us prayer warriors. Make in us those who have authority from heaven, not to bind up Satan, but to set captives free. Lord Jesus, you have set us free Help us to be those who have been given the keys to the kingdom, to open up the, the way, the truth, and the life, to reveal Jesus to our neighbors, to reveal Jesus to our co-workers, to reveal Jesus to people we see on vacation. Lord, help us to be your representatives here on earth till you call us home, no matter the cost, no matter the, what people say or believe or say about us, righteously or unrighteously. Lord, help us To live for your kingdom now so that when we get to your kingdom and we sit on thrones it'll be just like it was here except we'll see you face to face lord we love you we thank you for the privilege that it is to know you help us to know you and to make you known in jesus name amen